Well, it is uh, what would be called standard operating procedure for high-ranking officers, both commissioned and non-commissioned, to conduct what is called an after-action report following significant military training exercises. And what usually happens in after-action reports is that uh, the officers will begin to analyze and evaluate all of the personnel who took part in a particular training mission. And through that process, they'll begin to break down the, uh, the training exercise according to all of its various parts and comment on the things that were done, both good and bad. And of course, that's a very useful and, and helpful tool because uh, it prepares and trains soldiers to know how to improve themselves and to get better and to do things more efficiently, to isolate and identify deficiencies so that all of these things can be overcome in order that the soldiers will be ready, if called upon, to know how to use these in a real-life battle situation. But as we come to Judges chapter 2, we have something similar to that. Because as you come into chapter 2, you will notice now that the angel of the Lord, the captain of the army of the Lord, and I'm going to expound on that in a moment from Joshua chapter 5, comes to the people of God after their battle, after their military exercises, and he engages in his after-action report. And we know that these passages are connected because of the grammar that begins verse 1. It grammatically connects chapter 2 to chapter 1, but not as a, a continuation of the narrative of conquest, but now as a narrative of evaluation. A narrative of evaluation. And here, the angel of the Lord, or the captain of the armies of the Lord, uh, gives his assessment of Israel's failed military conquest of the land. We're going to begin this morning and spend almost our entire time on this first point as we look at the angel's confrontation. The angel's confrontation of Israel. We're told in verse 1, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. There's an important geographical reference there that's going to help us identify who this angel of the Lord is. And that important geographical reference point is the word Gilgal. The word Gilgal, and it's very obvious that the author of this particular passage has used that reference point, and he's tying together this meeting of the angel of the Lord from Gilgal to the first meeting of the angel of the Lord at Gilgal in Joshua chapter 5. You can turn over there uh, to that passage with me. It's a very significant passage. It's a very significant moment in Israel's history. Uh, prior to uh, what is recorded for us here in chapter 5, uh, Israel has uh, crossed the river Jordan, which means they are now in the land. And as they settle in here at Gilgal, they set up the memorial stones commemorating the Lord's miracle and leading them across the Jordan River on dry ground. And then the Lord has commanded them to be circumcised, all the males of Israel. It is apparent that uh, they had disobeyed the Lord in that particular sense. And so God commands Joshua to circumcise all the males of Israel. And then they observe uh, the sacrament of the Passover. And uh, you'll also notice this, uh, this important historical note in verse 12. The manna ceased on that day that they had been eating. 
And, and so all of these details put together tell us that Israel is now on a military footing. They are on a conquest footing. They are ready to take up the call of God to conquer the land. And so at some time after they settle in and all of these events have happened, we're told that Joshua sort of slips away from the camp. Verse 13, it came about when Joshua, when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? And here is described this first meeting of the angel of the Lord. But notice here, it is, uh, it is a surprise engagement. It is a surprise encounter as Joshua is out uh, reconning the land and spying out the military fortresses of Jericho. Uh, it's as if the Word of God just uh, says a surprise happened. He puts down his binoculars and he noticed that standing right in front of him with sword drawn is this man. And Joshua, noting his demeanor and his position with sword drawn, uh, asked the very sensible question, are you on our side or not? And here is the important reply. Verse 14, he said, No, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. You see, he corrects Joshua. It's not about whether you are for or against. He says, are you, is Israel for or against me? I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Well, Joshua, sensing the authority and the position of this man, fell on his face. He bowed himself before. He said, what is my Lord to say to his servant? And there's one other detail here that's also important in verse 15. When the commander or the captain of the armies of the Lord tells Joshua to take off his sandals. Now remember, we're coming to this particular passage to help shed light on who this angel of the Lord is at Gilgal in Judges chapter 1. And we said because of the the geographical reference to Gilgal and the coming up from Gilgal, it would lead the reader who's read Joshua to go back to this encounter here uh, with the captain of the army of the Lord at Gilgal. But as you begin to read this passage, uh, other bells and lights begin to go off as you see Joshua bowing down, as you hear the authority of his voice, as you see his commands, and then also the command uh, for Joshua to remove his sandals for he is on holy ground. All of these details now move you to another passage, which is Exodus chapter 3. Of course, you remember there is the encounter of the angel of the Lord uh, with Moses. And we're told that Moses was out uh, shepherding sheep by Mount Sinai, by by Horeb, the Word of God tells us. And and behold, an unexpected sight. He sees a, a burning bush that is not consumed. And we're told there that the angel of the Lord spoke out of the blazing fire to Moses. Now, there's all kinds of things going on in that particular uh, transaction. But you'll note the thematic continuity with the passage as Moses humbles himself there before the Lord, realizes that he's in the presence of the divine, and he also takes off his shoes, realizing he is in the presence of holiness. And there, the angel of the Lord says something very important about himself. He tells Moses that he's come down to deliver Israel from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Now, 
That's very important because that expression of the Lord's purpose in coming down to meet Moses matches exactly, as you come back now, to Judges chapter 2, what the angel of the Lord says to Israel here. He says, now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land. Now, maybe you couldn't follow or maybe I wasn't clear enough in expressing all the links, but it's obvious as you put all of these passages together that the angel of the Lord is the same person as the captain of the hosts of the Lord's armies. He is the angel of the Lord. He is the one who was promised by God to lead Israel not only out of Egypt, but in conquest of the land. And so the identity of this angel of the Lord here is the very one that we met uh, in the encounter with Joshua somewhere in the area of Jericho as he came up from Gilgal. And the point of all of these references now is to compare and contrast. It's to compare and contrast. The last time we met the angel of the Lord standing outside of Gilgal, Israel was obeying the Lord. It was a very positive encounter. Uh, There is uh, an expectation of obedience as Israel has crossed the Jordan. They've submitted themselves to circumcision. They've observed the Passover. They've made themselves ready for battle. The whole account is positive. And as you work your way through the book of Joshua, you can see that the people of God at that point are Joshua's leadership, are submitting to the Lord's commands. So you have this positive side of the comparison and now develop and contrast that with what unfolds here in chapter 2, verse 1. Whereas the air was positive in Joshua in the last meeting, the air here is negative, filled with disobedience, failed conquest, and covenant breaking. And just to forecast to us that this is going to be a very unpleasant encounter and a very negative encounter, uh, you can see the name of the place. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, which means weeping. Negativity is in the air. And so the angel of the Lord now comes to Israel and assesses them. Notice his message. It's a two-part message. The first part of the message is that God is a covenant keeper. And the second part of the message is Israel is a covenant breaker. Notice the covenant-keeping actions of God now as the dialogue, or rather the monologue, unfolds from the angel in verse 1. He said, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you into the land which I have sworn to you. You see, the angel here now is testifying to the Lord and to His great acts of conquest and deliverance. I have brought you up out of Egypt. Remember all the passages in the Old Testament which look back to this pivotal and foundational event and describe it in glorious terms. Exodus chapter 15 says, The horse and the rider have been hurled into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea. The choices of his officer is drowned in the sea. The deep covers him. They went out in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. The marvel of the Exodus event is described in peppery rhetorical questions in Deuteronomy 4, verse 34. Where Moses said, Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials and by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terror as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? 
before your eyes. We have the lyric praise and testimony of Psalm 105. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of their vigor. Then he brought them up with silver and gold among his tribes. There was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when he departed. You see, as the angel here gives his assessment of Israel, he first begins with the message about God. The message about God is clear. God has made good on His promises. Well, over 400 years before this, in Genesis chapter 15, we are told that God came to Abraham before He inaugurated His covenant. And He said, your people are going to go down to the land of Egypt. They're going to go down to a foreign land. They are going to be afflicted by their captors. And in 400 years, I will bring them back into the land. And now the angel is standing here at Bochim with the people of God uh, standing upon the soil of the land promised to Abraham. And the promise has come true. And so the angel declares the Lord's faithfulness. He's kept His covenant promises. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But it's not just that He led out of Egypt. He led him into the land. And again, that leading into the land is the fulfillment of covenant promises. God promised to lead them in conquest. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 and 23. The Lord says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Exodus 34.11, we find the promise again. Behold, I'm going to drive out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, the promise is affirmed again. Know that the living God is among you and that He will assuredly dispossess before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. All of those promises rooted in a former promise. Once again covenantal promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he meets Abraham as Abraham steps foot into the land of Canaan for the first time near Shechem. We're told that the Lord came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. Hundreds of years later, what do we have? The angel of the Lord standing before the children of Abraham and saying, I did it. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And now, the assessment. We've seen the action. Now the assessment. What does this all mean according to the angel? He said, I will never break my covenant with you. See, the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness to His covenant words stands as an infallible testimony to the faithfulness of the Lord and His word for all generations. As we think about this passage this morning and what it means for us, what we are to learn from this passage as we hear the angel of the Lord recount the past actions of victory and conquest is that the Lord's word can be trusted. That's the entire point of the message here of the angel to the Israelites. 
When they heard the command of God to go conquer the land, and when they heard the promises of God that He would lead them into the land, when they heard the promise of God that He would send His angel before them, when they heard the promise of God that He would dispossess the nations before them, they were to reflect upon those promises of God and weigh them in view of the other promises. They were to look at the objective testimony. They were to remind themselves of the many times in the past where God spoke covenant words and then God fulfilled them through covenant acts of faithfulness. It's precisely what the angel is impressing upon them to their shame as they stand before the angel of the Lord, their feet on the very soil that was promised. He impresses upon them. They should have known. They should have believed. They should have obeyed. They shouldn't have come up with lame excuses like iron chariots as a part of their excuse for failing to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They shouldn't be thinking about superior weaponry of their enemies because all they have to do is reflect back upon the faithfulness of the Lord to His Word. Against all odds. That's the sense of Deuteronomy 4.34. What God has ever done this daring thing to go into the midst of the land of a powerful enemy and to take His people out in this spectacular and powerful and marvelous way that He did. You see, the angel of the Lord is impressing upon them the faithfulness of God to His covenant and to His promises and to His word. God's past actions of faithfulness are a testimony, an infallible testimony to all generations that the Lord is faithful to His Word. This morning as we hear this recounting of the Lord's faithfulness to His covenant promises, it's a testimony to us. It's a testimony to us as we reflect and we remember upon all that God promised and that all that God fulfilled is that if He's given us a command to follow, if He has given us orders, if He's given us a task, if He's given us a challenge, if He's given us a calling and He says, Go! We go this morning. We go this morning in confidence that the Lord will be with us. The Lord will strengthen us. The Lord will enable us to do what He's called us to do because the Lord's words never fail. If He says He will go with us, if He says He will gift us, if He says He will strengthen us, if He says He will guard us, if He says He will keep us, He will. The psalmist reflecting upon this pattern of divine faithfulness to His covenant promises says in Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words Pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You see, the purity of the word is the God who stands behind it, who will do what he says. And so the psalmist leads us to reflect upon the purity of the word and the the covenant-keeping God who not only promises but acts. Well, we not only hear the message of God's covenant faithfulness, we see now the message of Israel's covenant breaking. It's interesting that the angel uses the same rhetorical pattern as he speaks about 
Israel, as he did in the case of referring to God's acts of covenant keeping. He isolated two acts of God, and then he assessed them. He said the meaning of it is, God is a covenant keeper. Now as you come to verse 2, you see two actions of Israel, which are uh, really the form of reciting commandments, and the implication is, of course, when you get to the end of the verse, they didn't keep those. So you have uh, the actions, two failed actions, and then the assessment, disobedience. But look look at these uh, commands here in verse 2. He says, as for you. Now, in contrast to God and His covenant faithfulness, as for you, you shall make no covenant, first of all, with the inhabitants of the land. You shall make no covenant. All kinds of passages that we could turn to back in the law, but Exodus 34 uh, unfolds that for us. Exodus 34 spells out this particular covenantal obligation on the part of Israel. Where there the Lord says, watch for yourself that you make no covenant in the inhabitants of the land into which you are going. Or they'll become a snare in your midst. So you have the charge there. Make no covenant. But the thing I want us to notice before we get into this command is what prefaces it. In verse 11 in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord promises to Israel, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you. What is that? We talk about there being two parts to the Word of God all of the time. There is law and there is gospel. As you look at the passage this morning, people of God, what is it? It's promise. I will do what the Lord says. That's what gospel is. Gospel is God's promise to do something for us graciously. And so the preface of the command this morning, the thing that we want to catch hold of and notice, the preface to the command not to make the covenant is the fact that Israel stands in God's grace. Based upon the Lord's promise to them, based upon the covenant graciousness of God, based upon God's mercy shown to Israel, God commands His people now. In view of what I have done for you, this is what you're to do for me. Make no covenant. It's the same indicative, imperative structure that we often find throughout the New Testament when we think about Christian ethics. Rooted in the Gospel, we find constantly in the New Testament letters to Christians and to churches, rooted in the Gospel, on account of what Christ has done, the apostles will say, walk before me and be blameless. Live for the Lord. And they give very specific commands about how to do that. It's the same structure we find here. In view of the grace, God calls them to obedience. Make no covenant. Well, remembering uh, as we worked our way through Judges chapter 1 last Lord's Day, we'll remember that Israel did make covenants. You see, the angel of the Lord is not simply referring to the covenants made with Gibeah and Joshua. That's true. Uh, They already have shown themselves unfaithful. But the the, the covenanting is what we already discovered last week. And in the covenanting of Ephraim with the man from Luz. Remember, we showed uh, how verse 24, when it says, we'll treat you kindly, that the word there, we'll treat you covenantally. They covenanted with this pagan to allow him to to escape scot-free. And then to go rebuild spiritual laws all over again 
in another place. And then then also you have the the constant testimony from verse 16 forward in Judges chapter 1 of how Israel permitted the Canaanites to live in the land. It amounted to a covenanting. It amounted to a covenanting. For all intents and purposes, Israel was covenanting with the Canaanites, permitting them to live in the land when God had said specifically they are to be killed and destroyed. So Israel failed with respect to that command, you shall make no covenant. And then the second one, you shall tear down their altars. You shall tear down their altars. Again, you can find the same testimony, the same command in Exodus chapter 34 verse 13 where the Lord said, you're to tear down their altars and to smash their sacred pillars and to cut down their asherah. God made it very clear that Israel was to go into the land and to destroy and to deface and to erase and to eradicate all presence of pagan religion in the the land of Canaan. They weren't to save uh, trinkets or little icons or religious paraphernalia for safekeeping and for memories. They weren't to study about pagan religion and cultural anthropology classes. They weren't to take the religious paraphernalia and the ashtrim and all of the idols that accompanied this idolatrous religion. They put it in museums or to reframe them and make them uh, into little tourist knickknacks. They were to destroy everything so that there would be no memory of paganism in the land. No testimony of false religion in the land. A comprehensive destruction of all idolatry. Now notice verse 2. You shall tear down their altars but you have not obeyed. Just as in the case of making covenants uh, with the people of the land as they were forbidden so Israel also here has failed in this respect to obey God's law. They did not tear down the altars. Now, we don't have a lot of testimony of that in chapter 1, but since the angel of the Lord is accusing them of that, we're on safe grounds for believing that they did not do what they were told. But we do have some testimony, after all, in verse 33. It said, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bethanath, And you read that and you say, what in the world is that? Well, Beth Shemesh means house of sun god. Clear reference to pagan false religion. And Beth Anoth means house of Anoth. And in uh, Canaanite mythology, Anoth was one of the principal goddesses in the Canaanite pantheon of gods. She was a consort of Baal. Now, by the fact that these cities are allowed to stand and that the people are allowed to live there, life unchanged, tells us that Israel is already sowing the seeds of idolatry as they pronounce or they permit uh, these wicked cities with their false, pagan, idolatrous worship to remain in the land. And so the angel of the Lord indicts them again. You've made covenants. You haven't torn down their altars. You have not obeyed me. Israel, 
is a covenant breaker. But what's so fascinating is not just the assessment, you have not obeyed me, but then how the angel of the Lord puts at the end of verse 2, what is this you have done? What is this you have done? And this is obviously referring to the permission of idolatrous worship in the land. And this obviously refers to the making of covenants with the people of the land. It's so fascinating here because this is a bold confrontation, remember now, of the angel of the Lord. And what's so interesting about this question is it's not filled with fire and brimstone. There's no thunder and lightning in it. It's almost a note of dismay. Like a parent toward a disobedient child. What is this you have done? I'm not even going to talk about it anymore. The angel of the Lord says, you tell me, what is this you have done? You have covenanted with the people of the land when God has covenanted with you. God has loved you. God has preserved you. God has delivered you. God has fought for you. God has given you everything, including the very land you stand on before me right now. What is this you have done? It's kind of a very interesting insight, I think, in terms of how God looks at the sins of His redeemed people. I believe it's an interesting insight into how God sees the sins of His redeemed people. It's it's a wonderful lens for us. It helps us to see and understand how God views us in our sin. Yes, God has uh, sent Jesus Christ uh, to shed His blood and to pay the penalty. And the wrath is satisfied. And God doesn't see the sin judicially now. It's taken care of. But He still sees the sin. As a father, he says to us in our sin, What have you done? I've given my son to you. I've washed you with his precious blood. I've applied his righteousness to your account. I've justified you. I've adopted you. I've made you a part of my family. I've placed my spirit within you. I've made you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I've promised you eternal life. What is this you have done? I think it's a helpful thing for us to remember this morning as we look at the sin in our own life. A helpful way for us to think about standing before sin and temptation in general. Remembering this is the Lord's demeanor, this is the Lord's response. As a father, disgusted and disturbed and bothered, what is this you have done? Lord, we have us think about His mercy to us and our corresponding responses. What is this you have done? What else do we learn from the passage this morning? Besides a helpful way to understand how the Lord sees our sin, and which at the same time serves as a, a discouragement so that we would turn away from our sin. What else do we see here as application? Well, I think uh, we can make a good case But the very commands that the angel of the Lord uses to evaluate Israel's military conquest apply to us. You shall tear down their altars. As an application of the second commandment, 
It applies to us now. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are to worship God in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. We're not to make images of God, either to worship or serve God by them. But we're to not be wiser than God in our worship so that we would not be taught by dumb idols, but by the lively preaching of His Word. The law and the command given to Israel is the same to us. You shall tear down their idols. We are not permitted to tolerate idolatrous false worship in our midst. But I think it also applies beyond that simply to the worship of the church. I I would argue that this applies as a command to the people of God where they live in their culture. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 108, says it like this, We are to disapprove, detest, oppose all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, remove it and all monuments of idolatry. In other words, we are to be like Israel in the sense of not making peace with idolatry and paganism and false religion around us either. The concept of religious pluralism and multi, uh, multiculturalism is wrong. And those cultures flow out of idolatrous, false, pagan worship and false religion. The people of God are to stand in opposition. The people of God are to stand in opposition to that false religion to see it removed from the land. And the reason is the same as it was for Israel. In the case of both commands, I took us back to Exodus 34, verses 12 and 13. But to help us understand that the obligation continues not just to Israel, but to us, that we are to tear down the altars and oppose the false worship and the false religion in our culture and our midst around us. The reasons are the same. Listen to the reasons that God has given the command. He said otherwise. You might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they should play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters or your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Notice the reasons for the command. The reasons are for the command is because idolatry and false religion and paganism is dangerous. Dangerous spiritually to the believer. It's a snare, as Judges 2 verse 3 describes it. It's a snare. It's a hunter's trap. Disguised, covert, and spiritually lethal. Well, we see the sanction now in verse 3. Here is the angel of the Lord's response to Israel's disobedience. So therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. You see, the response of the angel of the Lord to the disobedience of the people of God is covenant sanction. I will no longer fight for you. I will no longer assist you in driving out the wicked from your midst. 
That's a covenant sanction. It's rooted in the covenant that God made with Israel. And God made it very clear that there would be blessings and there would be curses. There would be sanctions to disobedience. And if Israel failed, He would bring upon them all those sanctions. Well, here is the beginning in redemptive history of God's dealing with Israel where He begins to unleash the sanctions. I will not drive them out and they will become... As thorns and snares, they will be physical and spiritual harm to you. That is an essential verse for understanding the rest of the book. Because as you begin to read through the book of Judges, as we've already in in part touched on in our initial sermon in this series about how the people uh, of God, the people of Israel, each man was doing right in their own eyes. Why was it happening that way? Well, it was because there was no righteous king. But there's another reason why everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's because God refused to drive out the pagans and the false religion and the Canaanites from their land. He allowed them to stay and to remain as snares and traps to the people of God. As we'll begin to see next week, this downward cycle of spiritual degeneration occurs one generation after the next in Israel because, as the Word of God explains, they forsook the Lord and they followed other gods from the gods of the peoples who are around them and they bowed themselves to them and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. This covenant sanction explains at least in part, why the history of the judges unfolds as it does. Well, that is the word of the angel of the Lord to Israel. Now notice their response. Verse 4, When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they named that place Bochim. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. Israel's response was to weep. And it's hard to evaluate from the way this is worded here whether this was genuine repentance. This is really tough. Uh, this is really tough exposition of the law here. The angel of the Lord looks them right in the whites of their eyes and and explains to them their covenant violations and and the sanctions that will result. He exposes their sin. He, He forecasts their future as one of being constantly ensnared and trapped up by idolatry. And the response of the people of God is to weep. Leaves us some questions. Why are they weeping? Are they sorrowful for breaking the covenant? Are they sorrowful because they saw how graciously God had treated them and how sinfully they had treated the Lord? Are they sorry about the consequences? Or are they sorry because they've offended God? It's not clear. We're also not told that they repented and turned. Instead, the rest of the narrative of Judges is the people of God constantly turning away from the Lord and persisting in disobedience. The only really positive thing that we're told here about them is that they offered sacrifices, but that's counteracted and offset by the fact that they called the name of the place Bochim, the weeping. It's interesting, instead of turning from their sin, or at least a clear notation of turning from their sin, we're told they made a monument to their emotional response. Which sounds 
pitiful and self-serving. And so the passage ends in a kind of repentance. A kind of repentance. But because there's such a lack of clarity here about the repentance and its character and what it really looks like to truly repent, I want to conclude this morning uh, as we wrap up our message this morning on what true repentance really is. After all, this has been a very powerful proclamation of the law. And when the people of God hear a powerful proclamation of the law, it is to lead them to repentance. And we should think for a moment then together as God's people, what does it mean to truly repent? And there's perhaps no better simple summary of what true repentance is than that which is outlined in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 76. And it first of all uh, speaks of the source. In outlining a model of true repentance, it speaks to the source of true repentance. And it says, it's a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God. Notice, first of all, the source of true repentance. It is a saving grace. It is something that God determines to do in you. And so this morning, as you've been hearing the law of God expounded, and if you have heard the call from God to not make covenant with the idolatrous and the pagan, as you've heard the law of God expounded in terms of a duty to suppress and to put down and to squash idolatry, not only in the worship of the church and in your own life and the world around you, as you hear all of that and you say, yes, as I hear about this command and not to engage in idolatry and to follow idolaters. If you hear that and you agree that you know that in your life you've failed in some respect, that is, the, that is the work of God, as the confession puts it. It's a work of God's grace, whereby the Holy Spirit takes the law and He applies it to the conscience of the believer. So the source, the source of true repentance is the grace of God working by the Spirit through the law. But then it tells us next about the roots the roots of repentance. It says, repentance comes as a sense not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and the odiousness of sins. And upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. There are your roots and there are three of them. And the first one is a sense of alarm. It's a sense of alarm about sin. People who are truly penitent, truly repentant before the Lord, are alarmed by the danger of sin. Because they are aware of its power to disfigure and to corrupt and to harm and to abuse spiritually. And so it's not simply a a crying or a weeping over sin because of its consequences, but they see that it's extremely dangerous. But not just dangerous, but that it's filthy. Odious. Not a word we typically use in our regular conversations today, but odious. It's a foul smell. It's like the response that you have when you put your nose up to a milk carton that's sour. It's a foul smell. And there's there's an obvious reaction to that. A drawing back out of the sense of the odiousness of the sin. True repentance leads people to look at their sins and to see that they smell foul. 
But interestingly, there's another root, and a glorious one at that. Not just danger, not just an awareness of filthiness and odiousness and foulness, but an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. You see, the believer who is aware of their sin, the believer who understands the danger of sin, the believer who smells the foulness of the sin, is also given by God's grace this wonderful sense of the mercy of God. You see, it doesn't just have to be a weeping and a lamenting over sin, because when God brings true repentance to the heart of a believer, He does it in such a way that even as they reflect on its danger and its brokenness and its corruption and its, and, uh, and its foulness, they, they perceive that God is still merciful, however. And instead of just simply setting up a monument to our emotions and crying and have a sorrow that's according to the world, the true believer who's truly repentant turns to the Lord out of a sense that God is gracious. You see, you haven't repented yet this morning, people of God, unless you have come to terms with the fact that God will be merciful to you in Jesus Christ. And so we're to take the knowledge of our sin seriously, but then also remind ourselves of God's mercy. And then the catechism question moves from source to roots to the model of true repentance. Finally, it says, He so grieves for and hates his sins. He so grieves for and hates his sins that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk him in all the ways of new obedience. There's the model. Sorrow. A true godly sorrow, being grieved about the sin. But then next quickly, a turning from it. A turning from it. Very important to clarify that it's not just that there's a sorrow, but that there is a turning away from sin at the same time. You see, people who are truly repentant, who are truly penitent before the Lord, don't hang around in their sin. They're not like a dog that can vomit in the yard, then run around for a few minutes, and then return to it like nothing ever happened. People who are truly penitent for their sin hate it and they forsake it and they turn from it. It doesn't mean that they're not going to struggle with fighting sinful temptations and sinful urges and sinful desires. But people who are truly penitent turn. You don't have the right this morning to see yourself as repentant or penitent if you're not turning. You can have all the sorrow. You can cry all the tears you like. You can say all the right words. Even as Israel did here and made a monument to their sorrow. But until you have turned, you're not penitent. We cannot be confused about that this morning. But then there's the last aspect. 
There's the last aspect. The sorrow, the turning, and then the walking. The last part of the answer says, they propose and endeavor constantly to walk with Him in all the ways of new obedience. You see, the sin is replaced with new obedience. True repentance always ends up with the believer not just being sorrowful, not just seeing the sin, not just being grieving, not just turning, but now replacing. Replacing. Replacing the sin and the sinful behavior and the sinful attitudes with what God commands. And they do that because of a sense of the grace of God. They do that because of a sense of the grace of God. They do that realizing the mercy of the Lord to them. That's what true repentance looks like. We walk away from this very alarming preaching of the law, which led to weeping by those who first heard. Let's make sure this morning that ours is not just a weeping, not just some external marks of penitence, but true repentance before the Lord, marked by grieving, turning, seeking forgiveness, and then living out that new obedience as God showers His grace and kindness upon us through Jesus. Let's pray.